Most of them paint quite a grim picture of abuse, lack of agency, and even injustice, such as in late October last year, when Saudi Arabia's execution of Tuti Tursilawati drew the Indonesian public's attention towards the plight of foreign domestic workers. However, while it is true that Indonesian maids often face terrible working conditions, their lives abroad are also much more than just a job. For one, they have more agency than what the public gives them credit for. And in their spare time, many of these women have creative pursuits such as fiction writing. Recently, a new genre of Indonesian women's literature has developed, one in which, often in short stories, authors reimagine their experiences as domestic workers in foreign lands. Collectively, these stories provide an honest description of the complex and multifaceted reasons for working abroad, the mates' living and working conditions, and their hopes and dreams for a better life. To discuss about the agency and creativity of Indonesian foreign domestic workers, I chat with Dr. Jafar Suryamangolo. Dr. Suryamangolo is an assistant professor at the National Graduate Institute for Policy Studies in Tokyo, Japan. His research interests are on working class politics and political change in contemporary Southeast Asia. More recently, however, Jafar is the editor of an upcoming collection of 23 short stories written by Indonesian female foreign domestic workers titled, At a Moment's Notice, Indonesian Maids Write on Their Lives Abroad. The book is published by Nias Press and will be available from March 2019. Jafar Suryamangolo, thank you very much for joining me on the show today. Uh, thank you, Charlotte, for having me. I very much look forward to our chat today, um, especially because generally we hear from time to time news about Indonesian uh, foreign workers abroad, uh, particularly about Indonesian domestic workers. Uh, but actually, we don't know very much about uh, their demographics, their uh, conditions of living abroad, and what their patterns of migration are. So I want to begin our chat today with a general overview of Indonesian workers globally. What do we know about the contemporary situation or pattern of migrations that we have nowadays? Well, uh, we would talk about pattern of labor migrations, uh, especially for Indonesian workers. This is actually in line with the pattern of labor migration in East Asia in general. So the pattern in, uh, of labor migration in East Asia, starting from, let's say, late uh, 60s, late 1960s to mid-1990s, uh, there are more workers heading to more developed countries, to uh, Europe, to America, to Australia. But starting from mid-1990s and much more apparent after the crisis in 1998, there are more pattern, uh, more workers uh, heading to uh, newly industrialized countries in the region, such as uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Korea, and Japan. 
So we see the pattern change uh, well before the crisis, but much more apparent after the crisis here. If I can give you some uh, figures, let's say uh, the pattern of migrations, intermigrations, uh, especially in ASEAN itself, the World Bank already estimate like around 66 percent. Uh, so there are more uh, ASEAN workers in ASEAN itself. And that's actually in line with what happening with the pattern of regionalizations of ASEAN and the strengthening of East Asia community, in this case, ASEAN and Northeast Asia. So there are more people, in this case, workers, are working in ASEAN and in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Japan and Korea. Just That's new, actually. Do we know anything about the kind of demographics of uh, the, the workers that, that go on these different waves of migration? For instance, um, are, were, the, were the workers who went to more developed countries in the early um, 1990s and you know, from the 70s to the early 1990s, were they generally more white-collar workers or more um, from the higher socioeconomic classes compared to um, the majority of workers that left after the 1990s? Well, it's mixed actually. Uh, there are, of course, uh, the white color workers, mm -hmm. but still the dominant one is the blue color workers or manual workers. But uh, it's much more apparent, uh, the, the pattern much more apparent. Uh, again, uh, starting from mid 1990s, there are more manual workers, there are more uh, blue color workers compared with uh, white color workers, the so called professionals. And uh, that is actually uh, precisely. Uh, one of the demographic, one of the character of the demographics of the labor migration from Indonesia is semi-skilled workers. So they are not skilled workers predominantly. Okay, and what do are uh, what are some of their occupations when when they go abroad? And do we know uh, which countries they predominantly go to for these lower skilled workers? The Indonesian Agency for uh, Protection of Migrant Workers, the BAP, BNP to TKI, uh, quite have a, a lot of data about this, and and they categorize 21 sectors of jobs actually, and from there we can see the uh, semi-skilled or skilled workers are nurses, caregivers, crane operators, technicians, and well, spa therapists, spa and the rest therapies. are spa therapists. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because there are certain countries in Asia, uh, let's say Japan and uh, Korea and Taiwan, they accept a special uh, visa for spa therapies, not only from Indonesia, but uh, from Thailand also too. And so the, the, uh, the number of uh, uh, lower skill is much more still dominant compared with the semi-skill or skill workers. Okay. Now, your own um, recent work uh, has focused on foreign domestic workers, in particular, female foreign domestic workers. Yes. What are some of the contemporary uh, both push and pull factors that motivate um, Indonesian foreign domestic workers to seek employment abroad? Well, there are uh, a lot of well push and pull factors here. Usually, and, and this is much more conservatively in the media, in the TVs, and people talk about it, is economic reasons. Uh, they don't get jobs in their home country, uh, they need to go out to find jobs, or they are poor, they don't have enough uh, money to, to earn a living in Indonesia, so they need to go out. 
But besides of that, uh, there are many other factors that uh, keep these uh, women uh, go abroad. And uh, this kind of stories, uh, the reasons of their living, are, are well, reflected in their stories that they, they, they write. Uh, and from here, uh, we can see that uh, there are various factors, and not only single factor. Of course, economic reason probably still the dominant one, but there are many other factors, uh, families, life, uh, avoiding the agricultural works, finding independence, these kind of things actually shaping also their reasons to go abroad to find work. I guess this is like some of the uh, um, themes and some of, some more insights about the lives of Indonesian foreign domestic workers that we don't very much know about, do we? I mean, because if we look at the uh, reports in the news uh, and in on media about um, about foreign domestic workers, you know, usually the economic factors are 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 the sort of main cited reasons for for them leaving Indonesia. Um, uh, to seek employment abroad. Uh, but um, there are a lot of um, more motivations that we don't know about, is there? I mean, um, you know, tied as well to urbanization, tied as well to wanting to participate um, in a more sort of globalized forms of um, interconnected interconnectivity and also overseas experiences. Um, we'll get to your... Um, uh, research and also your most recent book that that talks more about the stories of the uh, written by these foreign domestic workers. Um, I want to probe a little bit more about uh, what you know as a researcher and also from 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 other research as well about what we know of the typical lives uh, and by typical lives I mean both working and private lives of Indonesian foreign domestic workers abroad. Do we know very much about you know typically how much they work uh, whether they have uh, much free time at all or much agency at all in, in, in conducting their daily lives, particularly since they're attached to other people's households abroad? Well, uh, the general kind of jobs that they do again is uh, manual work. And with uh, female workers, they are usually work in the domestic fields. Uh, what kind of job they do? Uh, well, it's the 3D thing, uh, dirty, dangerous, and difficult. And that's the common kind of job that they usually get. But uh, in this kind of globalizations, most of our job actually 3D too, actually, isn't it? Uh, particularly because of the precarity of the job itself uh, and insecurity of jobs that uh, we don't have anymore uh, in, in this globalization. So, and that's actually put more pressures to manual workers, uh, well, uh, the domestic workers too. Uh, 3D is the dominant one, uh, but aside of that, uh, we know that it's cheap labor, yes. so they are paid less than the normal uh, workers. Uh, one, uh, there's no payoff, so that's second. Uh, no vacations, no day off, and if even if they have, it's usually only one day in a week. Uh, and the third character, it's much more actually more pronounced in their stories, is away from home. Uh, precisely because they are abroad too. And this kind of uh, intercorrelated all these three jobs, cheap labor, no day off, and away from home, make them uh, much more vulnerable. That's one of the uh, themes that I'm most interested about, particularly how this theme of, I guess, vulnerability. And, you know, I guess... Um, 
themes that we often don't think about when we are thinking about foreign domestic workers, such as homesickness, such as adjusting to a new culture, and you know, from an anthropological perspective, that's uh, that's really interesting. Um, let me ask first of all, though, like you said before, uh, they have limited. Uh, time for themselves, right? Because of the of the nature of their work, um, and also their spheres are limited because they only have one day a week, if that, um, where they can have some time off. Um, from your knowledge, what are some of the activities and creative outlets that these uh, foreign domestic workers have access to during their free time? And does this vary uh, from different countries where the majority of foreign Indonesian foreign domestic workers reside? Well, uh, it is actually uh, regarding to your last questions. Uh, yes, uh, it's varies according to the where uh, they are working. And uh, if I may uh, uh, quote something, there was an interesting study by Michelle Ford comparing uh, the labor uh, migrant workers here in uh, different countries in East Asia. Uh, so, situation in Hong Kong provide different thing for workers in Taiwan and, and that's quite also different than in Japan and uh, in Hong Kong uh, you have one day off and that's provide workers much more free time compared with other countries uh, again uh, let's say with Middle East uh, this kind of thing uh, again provide a situation where workers can do whatever they want uh, second they can well, upgrade themselves, getting more skill. Right. Uh, three, uh, well, they have other outlets to be creative. And this kind of thing is actually uh, unmeasurable, isn't it? Uh, that's the thing that actually uh, I'm more interested to. Uh, what kind of creativity, what kind of things that the workers can do in their limited time and in their situations, precarity, vulnerability, but they still can produce a lot of things that, well, it's actually much more interesting to to look at and to enjoy too. Are there um you know are there sort of general knowledge among the workers about about which countries um, receiving countries such as Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, etc. Um, are regarded to be sort of like the, the you know uh, the best employers and and where they have sort of like the most flexible laws uh, governing things such as um, such as time off and, and things like that. Is there um, sort of like a growing preference um, out of all these receiving countries where the majority of, you know, or where at least a lot of the contemporary workers would like to go to as their first preference? Well, perception, yes, they, they are. And this is widespread among the workers and also among Indonesians uh, in, the, in, in the rural and in the urban sector too. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we can see that Hong Kong is much more preferable for female workers to work in the domestic. Uh, for male workers, they prefer to go to Korea and Japan. Right. And there was increase uh, of uh, Indonesian uh, workers, male workers, to Korea, to Japan. And also an increase uh, for female workers heading to Hong Kong. And we can see now from the statistic, from the Hong Kong statistic, that Indonesian female workers are competing now with uh, Filipino workers. And that's roughly around 45%. Uh, this kind of perceptions... Uh, well, we can say it's true, but it's not really true. It's reflect reality, but it doesn't really reflect realities. And but it's commonly uh, shared uh, among the workers themselves too. Uh, whether they can get it 
whether they can go to really to Hong Kong or not, or they prefer to other places, whether it's against to the situations of the labor demand in the countries of where uh, these workers will work. The demand in Hong Kong, in, in Taiwan, uh, in Korea, in Japan is increasing too. And precisely because of regionalizations, one, precisely, uh, second, precisely also because of the situation that is much more easier, much more nearer than going to Middle East. And the topic of the Middle East is interesting, isn't it? Because, like, especially in, in recent times, there have been, you know, massive outcries, particularly if we remember uh, last year in um, late October, where uh, uh, Saudi Arabia executed Tuti Tursilawati, uh, an Indonesian domestic worker accused of, of murder. Um, and this execution was carried out without notifying, you know, consular staff um, from the Indonesian consulate or, or even Tuti's family. Are there sort of also negative perceptions to Towards particular uh, receiving countries among the workers themselves, such as um, Saudi Arabia and the Middle East in, in general, particularly for the women? Uh, perception, yes, of course. And uh, most of the female workers know about this. Uh, they prefer to go to Hong Kong. Uh, again, uh, about giving more, uh, in receiving more income than the one in uh, Middle East, and it's much more nearer. And they know that uh, there was a day off in Hong Kong, obligated day off, legal. And uh, the thing is, uh, there are still a number of workers still prefer go to Middle East of many different reasons they have, either uh, religious reasons, either they already have uh, friends or relatives in Middle East that they know. So this kind of thing, uh, the bond is still there. And we cannot rule out uh, the idea that oh, governments want to close down uh, certain countries to receive Indonesian workers, which actually good, but it will not uh, stop the workers of going there. That's um, this is the kind of complexities that we don't uh, often hear, and the the kind of motivations uh, from uh, the words of the migrants themselves. And this is uh, essentially what you try to capture uh, in the new book that you've um, edited, uh, called "A Moment's Notice: Indonesian Mates Write on Their Lives Abroad," and uh, which is going to be published very soon by Nias Press. You collected um, overall twenty six uh, fictional short stories written by uh, a foreign domestic workers, female foreign domestic workers uh, from um, various countries where they currently work and reside. Can, can you give us a little bit of a context uh, about the writing of these short stories themselves, right? Uh, first of all, uh, what language were these uh, short stories were uh, written in? You mentioned before that you know you translated them into English, uh, so uh, this indicates that they wrote it in Indonesian. So who, who were the um, audiences that was intended, you know, uh, when when these uh, women wrote the stories, um, and why did they write these short stories? Was it in the context of, um, you know, a concerted effort, or was it just like individual creative outlets uh, that you just happened to see cropping up in different communities organically? Well, uh, yes, you're right. Uh, they are all written in Bahasa Indonesia, in Indonesians, and precisely it shows that the sh short stories, this kind of uh, poem, short stories, novels, are intended among themselves. So they don't have any intentions uh, to write for the, well, international audience, like the so-called middle-class authors in Indonesia now. So the migrant workers write primarily and for uh, among themselves. 
And this is quite different, let's say, with uh, other male migrant workers. We know also they also write some uh, short, short stories. They write also reportage. Uh, the difference between this is precisely the gender and the type of jobs they do. Female workers, because they work in the domestic fields, they see more other things that male workers didn't see at home, what the employers are doing. And this kind of thing actually included in the short stories too. So in that way, actually, the short stories written by female workers, it's much more nuanced. They create much more multiple identities too, to see things that, well, uh, other things didn't record it, uh, especially the male workers. How do they? How do these um, short stories uh, circulate? Do they circulate it? You know, do they uh, self-publish and then um, distribute um, the the works among among various uh, worker communities? Uh, do they post it on blogs or on social media? How do these short stories reach their audiences? A lot of in many ways, actually. Uh, some are self-publishes. Some are in blogs. Some are in the newspapers. Uh, and they also have their own newspaper in Hong Kong. Uh, and this is all short stories are scattered. So, so far I know uh, there were only a few researchers are interested to collect all these short stories. Uh, and not many of them actually treat this as part of a research material too. So uh, they are scattered, then we have to do collections one by one and where to find them. These short stories also, once you read, the it's finished. No, it's, there's no follow-up or what to do with these uh, short stories. Uh, in Hong Kong, uh, there are competitions, writing competitions uh, for migrant workers to write short stories or a poem or novels. Uh, but this is more like a general, a general thing, uh, more like a ceremonial things, things that actually uh, later on also uh, happening in Singapore and in Malaysia too, uh, competitions for migrant workers to write their life stories, uh, working conditions, and etc. For events, for instance, such as perhaps um, International Women's Day or Labor Day or you know or Indonesian in Independence and things like that. Yes, uh, this kind of event is good uh, as an outlet for the workers, but also for the state, the the con receiving countries to give a human face. You know that, uh, well, uh, working in our country is not bad after all. These workers can produce something, isn't it? So in that way, it creates a facade that, well, it looks good to work in Hong Kong, it looks good to work in Singapore, it looks good to work in Malaysia. But it doesn't actually tell more about what is happening behind this facade, that there are more problems, of course, and there are issues that are not treated well, yes. And many of the workers still are fighting for their rights and interests too. I'm going to ask you now about some of the more specific themes that are explored by the uh, authors in your short stories, uh, compilation uh, of their short stories, um, and, and what, they, what they write about. Um, can you tell us um, some snippets, perhaps, of some of the short stories that you've collected, and also some prominent themes that, that um, really show up from, uh, the, um, from the stories that these uh, workers wrote about? The workers write a lot of uh, many other themes, actually, many topics that uh, included about life, working life, uh, working conditions, uh, about their dreams, about their fantasies. Uh, and as in the book, I grouped them uh, into four. 
Uh, one is employer-worker relationship. Second, love and sexualities. Third, moonlighting uh, as prostitute. Uh, four is about home. So I grouped these short stories, 23 short stories, into four categories. Of course, they are overlapping themes, overlapping topics. But uh, in general, I can say that uh, these kind of four topics actually represent many of the uh, themes that are written by the workers themselves. So why do you think uh, the authors chose to write uh, fictional short stories on these particular themes um, and topics as you've identified? Particularly interesting to me uh, is about the, the, you know, how they conceptualize home, right? A connection to the homeland. Uh, perhaps you can talk to us a bit more about, uh, you know, two things. What motivates them to write about these particular themes, and also why put them in the you know in the format of fiction rather than you know for instance uh, like a, like poetry or 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 nonfiction writing? Why they write in fictions? Uh, I think I can uh, provide the background for this. Uh, the first one is uh, as we know that uh, they writing in Bahasa Indonesia and uh, circulating among themselves, so they need to attract readers among themselves too. If they're telling stories as, as a story, a real story, other workers, their peers, already know or experience the same thing. So they need to attract readers, fellow migrant workers, to follow their stories, to make it fascinating for the readers too, to attract them to keep writing their stories too. So in that way, uh, fictions, short story, give uh, the impetus, the energy, for these migrant workers to share more stories among themselves. Among themselves, and second one, it's much more strategic tool actually. Well, we know report from uh, a lot of reports about this, about the situation in Hong Kong where employers, agencies, the employment agencies are checking their luggages. What do they do? What do they bring? So many of the uh, booklets from the NGO about workers' rights are confiscated. But oh. short stories, so in that way that workers will not know their rights, but short stories, novels, are accepted. So because they think this is not dangerous, this is okay for the workers to read. But the workers are using these short stories, using uh, novels, where they consult put messages inside of it, messages of empowerment, messages that you have the rights, that things that actually will be, well, uh, not really cared by the employer, not really cared by the agency because they don't think that this is actually an important stuff to read. So there's like a, almost like an encrypted message uh, in, in, these, in these short stories as well uh, that you know, that, that cannot be sort of understood by people not from their own community. And precisely it shows, uh, I want to say, it shows their agency too. They're using short stories to tell things to other fellow workers, their prospective workers too, that, well, you can do a lot of things here and, well, please empower yourself. 
That's quite ingenious, isn't it? Like, and, and that does tell, uh, you know, paint a story about perhaps the current state of affairs for Indonesian foreign domestic workers. And while it is true that sometimes they are in a situation where, you know, a lot of the times they're in a situation where they're extremely disempowered, uh, this suggests, you know, negotiations of obtaining agency even in, in situations where their rights um, are limited. Yes. Uh, so in this in this case, short story is not only short story itself. Short story works for something else, which actually help the readers, help also the workers to well to get more of their rights implemented. And this kind of things actually uh, very important for us researcher, policymaker to consider to see actually how to make the workers more protected aside of other things that probably we escaped things that actually things that we consider not really important, but actually important for the workers. Do you have an example of uh, perhaps a, a snippet from the book or, you know, a short story out of the 23 that you have that uh, is particularly memorable for you uh, because perhaps of the narrative, because of the characters in the story or perhaps uh, the message uh, that it's trying to convey uh, to give perhaps some of um, a, a little bit of uh, context to our listeners about about the kind of stories that uh, these women write about. I may say that uh, one of the uh, authors, uh, Miss Mega Christian, a senior, well, uh, already former migrant workers, she put a lot of energy there in the short stories of telling how to, well, to guide the young migrant workers coming to Hong Kong, what to do. If you have problems with your employers, this is what you should do. And this is better for you to do this kind of things. This kind of thing, actually, knowledge passing by. You pass on knowledge to young workers that newly coming to Hong Kong because precisely she already had the, the experience of 24 years working there. The perspective is not only the worker's perspective, but also their characters. Actually, the main character is the employers. So it's not the eye here, it's not only the eye of the workers, but the eyes of the employers. Or in that way, the workers as the author turn the table around using the employer as the main character in their short stories. And that's one. The other things also about the societies, about homosexualities in, in Hong Kong or in Taiwan, things that are actually not recorded in many other short stories. They're also about prostitutions, not only from the perspective of the workers, but also from the perspective of the users. Things that actually, again, not many, well, researcher or other reportage talks about. So in that way, the short stories give the workers and author, uh, well, literally tool to tell things that actually from different perspective, from different identities, things that actually cannot be conveyed conventionally as, well, again, stories that actually many people didn't know. So in, in many ways, these stories are not just about, uh, you know, the state of lives of the foreign domestic workers themselves, but it's also, from what you said, uh, almost like, a, like an observation, uh, like a migrant's observation of the host countries that they currently live in and the host societies like Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Precisely. so forth. I want to um, ask you further about what you think the stories uh, told by these uh, um, authors Tell us about the state, current state of affairs of 
Indonesian foreign domestic workers abroad. Uh, beyond everything um, that we uh, often hear in the news about, you know, stories of abuses, stories about, you know, uh, lack of agency, what what new facts or what new um, context are we getting from uh, these short stories as you've compiled them? Abuses uh, do happen, and it's very sad to hear this. But uh, aside of abuses, uh, well, it's in part of the minor uh, voices, that workers also gain their independence. They, they get what the sense of autonomy themselves. Uh, well, we should uh, understand this because the Indonesian female workers as domestic workers in East Asia are particularly young. They are 18 to 35 years old, and 60% are unmarried or single. Uh, they have the language skill, Cantonese in Hong Kong, Chinese or English in Singapore, uh, Mandarin in Taiwan. So things that actually not many other middle class women even have. Uh, and the experience of them moving from village to overseas directly by passing Jakarta as the capital city. So you may have workers coming, let's say, from Purwodadi, a town in central Java, go directly to Hong Kong without even stopping by in Jakarta. So these kind of things that actually experience, uh, things that they, they experience, their own capacity to, their skill to, uh, provide them uh, to write short stories. Are there plans to sort of nurture this kind of creative outlets for Indonesian foreign domestic workers uh, in, in the future? And not just for domestic workers, but for um, low-skilled Indonesian workers more generally. Uh, what are some of the um, initiatives that are currently out there uh, to uh, encourage more of these kind of stories uh, and forms of activism um, coming through? Yes, uh, there are a lot of initiatives, uh, in this case in Hong Kong, uh, in Singapore too. Uh, but in other countries, it's less, uh, this kind of initiative. And this initiative doesn't really come from uh, NGO or from the state, but also from the workers themselves. There are a lot of self-organized organizations uh, by the workers. And these organizations uh, include drama group, theater group, writing group, dancing group. So we, we have a lot of groups uh, among the uh, female migrant workers in Hong Kong, uh, and precisely uh, because the initiative comes from themselves. Thank you so much, Jafar, for shedding light into the lives of Indonesian foreign domestic workers that we often um, don't know about. Uh, and, and what little we know about often comes in you know, simplistic headlines uh, that doesn't really tell us very much about their um, experiences of being away from Indonesia and also their, their migration journey. Uh, so thank you very much for that um, and for chatting with me today. Thank you, Charlotte. That was Dr. Jafar Suryamangolo. Dr. Suryamangolo is an assistant professor at the National Graduate Institute for Policy Studies in Tokyo, Japan. Jafar is the editor of an upcoming collection of 23 short stories written by Indonesian female foreign domestic workers titled At a Moment's Notice, Indonesian Maids Write on Their Lives Abroad, published by Nias Press and will be available from March 2019. 
Talking Indonesia will return on the 7th of March. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode, or find us via your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.